I just want to pray for our time together, and then we'll dive right into it. Okay, let's do it. Father in heaven, thank you for this day, uh, even for all of its uniqueness and, and the craziness that we've had to navigate throughout the course of this pandemic. You are still good. You are still faithful. And your spirit is with us now. And so as we open up your holy word, God, in, in these ancient truths, God, speak to us in a way that changes us and, and encourages us and inspires us to live the life that you've called us to live. We thank you for who you are, God, and we commit this time together to you and to your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. All right, so here I am uh, up in the uh, kind of a, a, a room and it has some level of isolation in my house. I, I normally get the opportunity to run through my sermons uh, multiple times before sharing them on a Sunday morning. I haven't really had the opportunity to do that uh, today uh, as I've tried to navigate uh, being sick and quarantining and, and all the other things that are going on. So I've got my notes nearby. I might need to refer to them here or there. Uh, I don't have a great video setup in my house, and so I'm using my phone, and so I'm sure the sound quality isn't the most optimal. Uh, the, the layout may look a little different, but uh, God will be glorified nonetheless. And I'm excited uh, to, to have an opportunity to, to continue to encourage us for what God has in store for us this year. The last several weeks, we've been talking about the theme for our year, which is a renewed life. Uh, what it means for us to live as God's renewed people. And the reason we settle on that theme is, is really building upon the, the emphasis that we, we focused on all year last year, which was to fix your eyes on Jesus. The inevitable, I guess, consequence or result of fixing your eyes on Jesus is that your life should change, right? When, when you look to Jesus, man, he, he does things to you. The old is gone. The new has come. He takes all of your sin, gives you all of his righteousness. We're renewed. We're changed. And so part of what we wanted to be able to convey and, and encourage one another throughout the course of this year is to say your life should look differently after looking at Jesus. We shouldn't blend in to the world around us. We should stand out. And that's what this renewal accomplishes. And so we're going to be using the book of Romans to really help drive this theme home throughout the course of the year. Uh, Romans filled is filled with so many incredible truths. It's one of my favorite books of the Bible, and so I really look forward to, to walking through it uh, in great detail with you all this year. Um, but that being said, we actually didn't start at Romans 1. We started in the midst of things. Uh, it felt like Romans 12 was a powerful way to establish this theme of renewal and what it means to live a renewed life. And so for the last two weeks, we've used Romans 12, 1 and 2 to help kind of give us a greater understanding of what a renewed life is marked by. And the first thing that we really talked about was devotion, right? 12 verse 1 talks about that in view of God's mercy, we are to offer ourselves as living sacrifices. And that word offer means to make yourself available, right? To devote yourself to him. It's a, it's a verse that really speaks to devotion. And so the renewed life is marked by devotion to Jesus, now, what that devotion does is it, it naturally creates transformation. Whenever you devote yourself to something, your life begins to change to reflect that devotion. And so, so our lives are then transformed. We're no longer conformed to the patterns of the world. We break free from the patterns of the world and we're transformed. How are we transformed? By the renewing of our minds. That's the renewal that comes in. We constantly remind ourselves of this devotion that we are making towards Jesus. Now, what we see um, emerge as Romans 12, 1 and 2 begins to further explain that sort of devotion 
and transformation is that it inevitably leads you to discernment, right? That what we're really trying to answer in life is what is God's will for me? In these moments that I have to navigate, both big and small, what is God's will for my life? That is an, an opportunity to discern how God wants us to live, how to live this renewed life. And so it's not just devotion, but it's devotion that leads to discernment. And Paul concludes those opening two verses by reminding us also that God's will is worth pursuing because it's good, pleasing, and perfect. Now, I suggested to you last week, I felt like that was a good reminder to us to trust in the will of God because there are going to be moments where we don't see it to be good, we don't understand it to be pleasing, and it doesn't seem to be perfect, but we need to trust it anyway, right? And, and so part of what we see is that it's not just uh, devotion leads to discernment, but as we begin to truly trust in the will of God, we begin to have a life that is marked by joy and not just momentary joy or temporary joy, joy in all circumstances, in all situations, in all seasons, right? We see that it's devotion that leads to discernment, that leads to delight. These are some of the key markers of a renewed life, and that's what we've been talking about the last two weeks. Now, before we get to the book of Romans, to build upon that, what I wanted to do was to take a couple of weeks here and go back to the Old Testament and look at a story that helps paint a picture of everything that we just talked about, a story that, that really kind of gives color and sight and sound and context to a renewed life. And so we're not going to really go through the story and try to pinpoint every example of devotion, discernment, and delight, though I think you'll hear traces of those throughout the story. I, I just want us to find a story that serves as an encouraging example of why a renewed life can be so powerful and beneficial and worth pursuing. And so as we move forward for the next two weeks, both today and next week, we're going to be looking at the story of Ruth. So grab your Bibles and turn to Ruth. And, and here's what we know about the book of Ruth. It has been called by some to be one of the most beautiful short stories in all the world, right? In, in all of history. And it's very well known. And scholars have tried to identify if there's one primary message or one primary theme, but there are really numerous messages and themes that you can take away from this story. You, you can look at how it speaks to uh, the inclusion of other people and caring for other people that are foreigners. You can look at how it talks about God's blessings that he puts upon people who are devoted to him and trust in him. You can talk about his sovereignty in certain situations. There are so many different themes from this book that it's really inappropriate to try to just narrow it down to one. Uh, in, in many ways, you could say the, the story of Ruth has something for everyone. And so what I want us to do is do kind of a flyby of the story of Ruth. Uh, we're not going to go through it bit by bit in, in a very thorough examination of the book of Ruth. We're going to just kind of uh, summarize it, glance at it for the next two weeks, and use it as a model to better understand a picture of the renewed life. So this week, we're going to look at the first two chapters and some of the main points that we can see in the opening parts of the story. And then next week, we'll look at the last two chapters of the book of Ruth. But we're not going to read those chapters in their entirety. I'm just going to paraphrase them for you. And, and that's where I want to begin today. So if you have your Bibles, you can kind of follow along uh, if you want. I'm going, to, I'm going to be kind of referring to the first chapter in a good chunk of the second chapter here for the next few moments. But later in the sermon, there are going to be certain verses that we'll read and extract. And as we're listening to the story, part of what I hope we see is, is some important themes that help us understand that the renewed life helps us see not just devotion, discernment, and delight,
but but the ability to trust in God's love defending us, protecting us through all circumstances and situations. That was something that Ruth and Naomi especially needed. When you look at the opening scene of the story of Ruth and Naomi, it actually begins with a reference to a famine. There's a famine in the land, and so a man by the name of Elimelech uh, takes his wife Naomi and his two sons to the land of Moab uh, to find food, right? So it's in this desperation, it's in this need for survival that they actually have to leave their own country and go live as foreigners, living as refugees almost, you could say. And so they go to Moab and they're obviously there able to find food. Um, the sons marry, but very quickly as you start reading through the verses, uh, opening verses of Ruth, uh, we see that Naomi's husband, Elimelech, dies. We're not giving given details of, of his death or how he died and in what capacity, but we know that she quickly loses her husband. And somewhere within this fray, uh, time span of about 10 years, uh, where her sons marry Moabite women, Orpah and, Na uh, and Ruth, uh, her sons also pass away. And so very quickly, we see that this story is filled with hardship. It's filled with difficulty. It's filled with suffering. Naomi has had to deal with um, famine. She's had to deal with living as a foreigner. And now she has lost her, her husband and her two sons. And so there's this dramatic scene where she's overcome with grief and she's talking to her daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, and they're crying together and embracing one another. It's a very powerful moment. And, and her daughters-in-law are like, well, we'll come with you because she, Naomi has resolved, I've got to go back to my land. I've got no one else who can take care of me. And so the daughters-in-law are saying, well, we'll come with you. And Naomi refuses and says, why would you come, right? Even if I were to return and remarry and have a child and had a son, would you sit around and wait for him to marry you? It, that would have been the tradition to have another son marry these daughters-in-law, but she didn't have any and they're not gonna be able to wait. And so she encourages them, you need to stay here. So Orpah agrees and decides to stay in Moab, but Ruth refuses, she tells Naomi, she goes, wherever you go, I will go. It's a beautiful picture of devotion, right? And so seeing that Ruth is not going to change her mind, Naomi agrees and allows her to come back. So they return to Bethlehem, their hometown. And upon arriving back in Bethlehem, the people in Bethlehem are stirred at their arrival, whether that's because they're just now finding out about all that has happened and the loss of Elimelech and the two boys, or if it's the way that even the physical toll of, of all the suffering has, has uh, resulted in, in Naomi's appearance. We don't know exactly, but they're stirred. And they even ask the question, is this Naomi? Like, is this really her? And she says, don't even call me Naomi, right? Call me Mara uh, because my life is bitter. For the Lord has taken all these things from me. I, I left full, but I've come back empty. Right? She reveals her pain and her grief. So she and, and Ruth kind of settle back into Bethlehem. And part of the plight that they have to figure out is, is the plight of the widow. How are they going to survive? And so uh, Naomi explains to Ruth that she has a relative by the name of Boaz who owns some fields and might be able to take care of them. And so there's a reference to him. But, but Ruth is sent out to try to go glean in some fields to find some food. And it just so happens that she chooses a field that belongs to Boaz. And so as she's following along and the workers, Boaz looks and, and sees her, doesn't recognize her. And he asks 
his overseer, who is this woman? And he tells uh, Boaz everything about Ruth and what she had done for Naomi. And so then uh, Boaz goes and approaches Ruth and comes upon her and gives her this assurance that she's going to be taken care of. He says, you can work in this field. I've told my men not to harm you, not to lay a hand on you. You can go and get water when you need it. And he, and he gives her this assurance of protection. And so she's overwhelmed with his gratitude and she, she kind of falls down before him and says, thank you. And she says, what have I done that you would give me this sort of favor, a foreigner? And he responds, he says, I've heard what you've done for Naomi, what you've done ever since her husband died. And so may the Lord bless you. May he keep you for you've come to him to find refuge. And that's where we're going to stop the story today. All right, we'll continue where that story progresses next week, but that's where I want us to focus today. And so uh, when you think about the details of the story, if there's one kind of theme that I want us to consider this morning, it's how do we handle suffering? How do we handle hardship and difficulty? Because I think we can all recognize that hardship and difficulty and suffering are an inevitable part of life, right? It's just going to be a part of the human existence. And how we respond to it is an incredibly important question for us to consider because if we don't know how to respond to suffering and hardship, then the harder it is going to be for us to find the renewal that we so desperately need and long for. And so you can see that that's the immediate tone for the story of Naomi and Ruth. The story begins with famine, right? Living in an environment where you are struggling to find food to survive. It begins with the hardship of living as a foreigner, living as a minority, having to leave your own country, your own people, and live in a foreign land, and all the questions and, and difficulties that come with that sort of situation. We then see the hardship of death and grief as Naomi loses not just her husband, but her two sons as well. And then we have the question of just basic survival, the plight of the widow. What am I going to do to survive for the rest of my life. Her, this story is filled with hardship. See, hardship is often what makes us long for renewal, and it's often what helps us figure out how to navigate life in such a way that renewal can be found, right? But if we mismanage hardship, if we mismanage our trials and our sufferings, then it might lead us down a very different path where we don't find renewal, but we find resentment and rebellion. And so my question to begin this morning when you think about the story of Ruth is, what's your hardship? Right? Like, what are your trials that you're facing? My hope and my assumption is that very few of us are suffering hardship to the degree that Naomi and Ruth have, right? I know that we're not dealing with a famine, though we are dealing with shortages, right? But it's not to that extent uh, of what we see outlined here in the book of Ruth. Um, hopefully none of us are having to deal with that magnitude of losing that many loved ones in our family. Uh, but many of us have lost loved ones recently. We are familiar with grief. So, so what are your hardships? What are your trials? Maybe they're not quite, quite to the degree of, of suffering and difficulty that we see with Ruth, but, but what are they? And how have you responded to them? How do you make sense of them? How, how do you respond to suffering and hardship? And does it help you find renewal or does it discourage you from it? That's kind of the fundamental question of today's message. And it's an important one because it's an inevitable part of life. 
And, and so here's the first thing that I want to point out is what Naomi's perspective is of her situation and suffering. So if you want to follow along with this particular verse, this is going to be in Ruth chapter 1, really kind of down at verse 20. So they've returned to Bethlehem, and the women have, have looked at her, and they've been stirred, and they're asking, is this Naomi? And here's how Naomi responds in verse 20. She says, don't call me Naomi. She told them, call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. So there's this emptiness that she feels, right? There's this, this loss, and, and it's to the extent to where she doesn't even really recognize herself as Naomi. It, it's, it's this desire to totally re-identify herself based on the hardship that she has felt. She is allowing her suffering to define her. And that's something that we can often do, right? To be known by the bad things that happen to us. And we have to resist that urge because there's, there's, a, there's a strength that we need to hold on to so that we don't allow hardship and suffering to define who we are. But we do see that taking place here with Naomi. Now, the other thing, though, that I really want us to, to wrestle with is another part of her perspective that is pretty powerful here in these same verses. Let me, let me read them again, but with a different point of emphasis. She says, don't call me Naomi, she told them, call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So one of the, the first things that we see with Naomi and how she's responding to her own trials and hardships is that she sees that they are the result of the work of God. Right? The Lord has caused misfortune to come upon me. And, and that's going to present a very important question that I think we're all going to wrestle with at some point or another in our lives. And in our question, uh, when we ask ourselves this question, it really will influence our ability to know how to respond to suffering and whether or not it will lead to renewal or resentment and rebellion. And that question is this, does the Lord cause suffering? It's a good question. It's an important question. I wonder if you've wrestled with that before. How many times have you gone through certain hardships and difficulties and have you turned towards heaven with a similar mindset like Naomi and say, the Lord has done this to me. Why, God, have you brought this misfortune upon me? Those are hard prayers to pray. And yet I'd be willing to imagine that many of us have prayed them or felt them at some point or another. So what do we do with that question? Does the Lord cause suffering? Well, a couple of things that, that I would want us to to consider as we begin to try to answer that question this morning. The, the first thing that I want to call your attention to is that this is an Old Testament story. And um, when you think about the Old Testament, it's it's obviously before Jesus, right? So that's your freebie for the morning. If you get nothing else, just remember that. The Old Testament is before Jesus. My point in saying that is that there's a perspective of God and an understanding of God that existed amongst the people of Israel and, and the Jews at the time of Ruth and Naomi that is different than how we should see it on this side of the cross, right? It was common for ancient Israel to, to view that this idea that God blessed the righteous and brought misfortune upon the wicked, right? Job had similar thoughts, right? And so we see that as a common mindset in Old Testament stories and narratives, and, and Naomi 
is, is having a similar thought. The question that we need to ask is, is that accurate? So when we begin to ask ourselves that question, we need to still, yes, consider Naomi's perspective, but we also need to consider what it means on this side of the cross. And, and God does not necessarily bless the righteous and bring misfortune upon the wicked. It's not that simple. Uh, because what we need to recognize is that the wrath of God was fully absorbed in the cross, right? Like, like Jesus took on all of it. And so if we think that God is going to like force us to suffer grief and force us to endure famine just because he's mad at us for our sin, then we do not understand what Jesus did. That's implying that the sacrifice that Jesus made was insufficient and God is still seeking forth retribution for sin. Jesus absorbed all of it. So on this side of the cross, we need, we need to never lose sight of that. So we need to ask ourselves this question of does God bring upon misfortune and suffering with that in mind? And, and so there are several other things that, that we need to consider in order to answer that. Here's the first one. When we think about suffering that exists in this world, we also need to recognize that this world is just broken, right? It, the consequence for sin that we see in the garden was death, right? To, to rebel from God meant that we were going to live in a world that was filled with death and suffering. And, and that changed everything, even all of creation. Romans 8 says, creation itself groans in eager anticipation to be set free from this bondage of decay and death, right? So, so part of this is just living in a broken world, right? We have earthquakes and natural disasters and floods and famines because the world is broken. We also need to recognize that there are forces of evil, right? First Peter 5 says, uh, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. There are evil forces at work. E Ephesians 6 says there are rulers and principalities of the air, right? And so there is an evil that exists. There is a brokenness that exists that, that is also the result of suffering. It is a world that has been subjected to sin and death, filled with a humanity that will often choose to follow the desires of the flesh rather than desires of the spirit. And all those things are, gonna, are going to create suffering. So sometimes the hardships and the struggle and the suffering that we experience is simply because we live in a broken world. We live in a world where cancer exists, where miscarriages happen, where where parents and homes are broken, where, where there are earthquakes and natural disasters because it's broken, right? And so we need to understand that that is part of it. And those things are outside of God's will. They're outside of his plan. They're outside of his purposes. They're a natural consequence of living in a broken world. So that being said, how do we navigate hardship and trial and difficulty in light of a renewed life? in light of the gospel. Well, there are several passages of scripture that I want to refer back to that helps us understand it. The first would be to call your attention to Jesus himself, who lived a life that was filled with suffering and taught his disciples, if I'm going to suffer, then so will you. If, if I'm going to be persecuted, then so will you. If I'm going to take up my cross, then so will you. And so first of all, we need to recognize whether or not God causes, causes suffering, the invitation to follow Jesus is, is, an, is going to result in experiencing suffering because of the broken world around us. So we need to already anticipate it. But then we also see other examples of how we should respond to it. 
Uh, Acts chapter 5, after the disciples and apostles are flogged in the Sanhedrin, 5, 4, 5 verse 41 says, The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy, suffering disgrace for the name. Right? So they rejoiced at suffering. They actually welcomed it because they saw it almost as like a blessing for being identified with Jesus. Then you get to Hebrews 12, and I'll try to paraphrase this, but, but 7 through 13, if you want to go back and read it later, is a really great description of it. It says, endure hardship as discipline. That's, pretty, that's a pretty powerful phrase. How should I understand hardship? How should I understand trial? Well, Hebrews says, see it as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? Right, so it, it's this idea that a good father disciplines their child and a child actually respects them for it. And then he, later in verse 11, it says, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. But later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. So your hardship, though it may seem painful, will produce a certain righteousness and peace because it's training you. Right? So God is using hardship in a way that can make you stronger. This is similar to what we find in James chapter 1, a, a phrase or a verse that's probably a little bit more recognizable that it says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. So let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Right, so now we see James say, rejoice when you receive trials because it's going to produce something in you. Romans chapter 8 gives us another perspective. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. So yes, you may suffer, but it's going to be incomparable to the glory that will be revealed. And later in chapter 8, it says, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him that have been called according to his purpose, that even in your suffering and hardship, God can work them for good. So there are scriptures upon scriptures that help us understand how we are to respond to suffering and, and view suffering and to receive it in a way that actually strengthens us. So a couple of, I guess, just critical things that I would say in terms of how do we understand suffering and hardship that is an inevitable part of the human existence. When we start asking ourselves, did God cause it? One of the reasons we ask ourselves that is because we're wrestling with his sovereignty, right? If God is, is all sovereign, all knowing, all, all powerful, does anything escape his power and his divine plan? Meaning he is orchestrating every detail. So part of what we're wrestling with is his sovereignty. Right, if God is God, if he's good, then how would he do this? Why would he do this? So here's the first thing we need to remember. Because we live in a broken and fallen world where evil exists, a lot of the suffering that we see is a result of evil. God is not the author of evil. God is good. God is love. Right, so his sovereignty exists but it's a sovereignty that exists and gives ability for humanity to choose. It's sovereignty with choice. So let me explain that a little bit further. If God is love, which we know he is according to 1 John, then we need to recognize that, that love that is compelled, love that is forced, ceases to be love. 
right? Let me explain that to you. If, if you go and force someone to marry you, that's not love, right? That's just force. And so if God created and used his sovereignty in such a way that you didn't have choice and every single event was predetermined and orchestrated and all this, it, it would not be love. Love needs to be choosed or chosen, which is why at the very beginning, he says and gives them the opportunity to choose to follow him. But what does humanity do? They choose to try to be like God and they rebel. And so that's where sin comes in. And so so many of our choices create this brokenness, sinful, fallen world. And so we have the chance to choose how we're going to live this life. And sometimes those choices create more suffering. So our choices never threaten the sovereignty of God. He's never out of control, but he allows within his sovereignty these choices to take place so that we can say he is not the author of evil. He is not the orchestrator of every example of suffering that exists, but he can redeem those moments. He operates within those moments. He can use them for good, right? So he allows those trials, those hardships. He, he looks in on this broken world and he says, you know what? Not only am I going to make it new, but until I make it do, I make it new, I'm going to be able to use it in a way that actually makes my people stronger, right? That allows them to become mature, find righteousness and peace. And so he steps into this broken and fallen world of suffering and he shows us how to use hardship and use trials so that we can find perseverance and strength, right? So he uses it for our good. Right? That's an incredible aspect of how God uh, helps us navigate through suffering and hardship. And then the last piece to this that we can hopefully use to reconcile is it reconcile it is this idea that that suffering and hardship should also produce a longing. Right? So, so God will make all things new. Right? He he will eliminate all suffering. In fact, it tells us that when we get to be with him once again, there will be no more sorrow, suffering, or pain, and he will wipe every tear from our eyes. That's the world you're created for. That's the world you're long for. So when you experience hardship and pain and suffering, what it should do is in some ways ignite a longing for your true home, right? That's what gives rise to the prayer, Lord Jesus, come quickly, right? What suffering does is it brings you closer to the power of hope. In fact, I love the way that that's described in Romans chapter five. It says, we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So not only does suffering, can it be used for our good to strengthen us in perseverance, but it creates this longing within us that allows us to experience the power of hope, a hope that doesn't put us to shame, that doesn't disappoint us because we know it points us to God's love, right? So, so I guess here's my, my basic emphasis for us as we wrestle with this question this morning. We could spend all day trying to figure out the origins of suffering. 
And who caused what? Was it sin? Was it the fallen world? Was it God? All these different things. Rather than trying to figure out the origins of suffering and trying to figure out the, the causes of it, I think the greater question is how will you respond to it? How do you, do you respond to trial and hardship? If you're like Naomi and you let it define you and you put all the blame on your creator, that will lead you down a path of potential resentment and rebellion. But if we trust in God's sovereignty, if we trust in the way in which it can be used for our good, if we allow it to bring us closer to the hope that we long for, then it can lead us towards renewal and a renewed life. And that's really what the story of Ruth begins to point us to, right? Is that sense of responding to hardship and calamity. That's what really stood out to me about Ruth because Ruth is joining Naomi in this suffering. And what does she choose? She chooses devotion. She chooses devotion to Naomi and says, I'm going to leave the comforts of my own home, my own people. And I'm going to follow you wherever you go. I will go. And so here she and Naomi are trying to figure out how to manage their new difficulty, manage these hardships. And she's out working in these fields when she finds Boaz. And Boaz gives her these assurances of his protection. And so in response, she says, why have you found favor with me as this foreigner? And I love Boaz's response. This to me is such a great, great reminder of what we were just trying to talk about. In chapter two, verse 11, Boaz replies to, to Ruth and says, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law. I love that. I've heard what you've done. I've heard all about what you've done for your mother-in-law since all this happened, right? And so what's so remarkable about that is that what had been noticed was not so much the calamity and the hardship and the suffering, but how Ruth had responded to it. And that to me is such a great example for us, something that we should aspire to. That's, that's convicting to me that we should live our lives in such a way that what people listen to and what they hear is not so much the tragedy itself, but how we responded to it, right? A lot of times people will walk away from these stories and they'll, they'll just go through the list of all the bad things that happened and all the, the terrible things that occurred. But there are other examples where people walk away and yes, they're mindful of the tragedy, they're mindful of the hardships, but the real story is, but look at how they responded. So what would people say about you and how you're responding to hardship and how you respond to trials? What do they notice? What would they have heard? Would it be a voice like Naomi that's allowing the hardship to define it? Or would it be a response like we see with Boaz to Ruth? Man, I've seen what you've done, how you're overcoming, how this devotion is leading you in such a meaningful way. What would people say about how you've responded to your hardships and your trials. That should be what people really talk about. Let me give you kind of a, a more modern day example. I want to tell you the story of, of Jane Marchewski. Uh, Jane Marchewski is uh, an incredible testimony of someone who has had to endure a tremendous amount of hardship and pain through the course of her life. I've got some notes on some of these details because there were so many it was hard to keep up with. But in 2017, uh, she was diagnosed with cancer. And uh, it took her quite some time uh, before she could overcome it. And, and the outlook initially was not very 
positive. I think the doctors gave her about six months to live. Uh, about a year after, though, she was actually declared cancer-free. And so here she is. She thinks she's overcome this very difficult situation, and she's received this reprieve when actually uh, about a year later after that, she was given another diagnosis of a second battle with cancer. And I think it was in the midst of her second battle with cancer that her husband of five years actually left her. So imagine that, like facing a, a terminal illness, doctors the second time around had given her single digit percentage points of survival and your husband leaves you. So now you're abandoned, now you're alone, you're, you're facing this terminal illness and yet once again, she overcomes it and is declared cancer-free until again, the cancer comes back and begins to manifest itself in her spine and her liver and many other places. And so she's just overwhelmed with hardship and difficulty. And yet I was so inspired and encouraged with how she responded to it. Let me read to you some, some quotes that she offered on her blog as she shared her own personal journey of going through such hardship and challenges. She said at one point, I remind myself that I'm praying to the God who let the Israelites stay lost for decades. They begged to arrive in the promised land, but instead he let them wander. Answering prayers, they didn't pray. I love that. Here's what she means. For 40 years, their shoes didn't wear out. Fire lit their path each night. Every morning, he sent them mercy bread from heaven. These were things that they didn't pray for, and yet God provided. See, he was in the midst of their wandering, in the midst of their suffering. They were praying one prayer that was going unanswered, but he was answering all these others. And so she says, I look hard for the answers to the prayers I didn't pray. That's the, the mindset of someone that's refusing to let hardship and struggle define who they are, but trusting in the hand of God and how he can use it for your good. She continues in another entry when she says, when it comes to pain, God isn't often in the business of taking it away. Instead, he adds to it. He's more of a giver than a taker. He doesn't take away my darkness. He adds light. He doesn't spare me of thirst. He brings water. He doesn't cure my loneliness. He comes near. So why do we believe that when we are in pain, it must mean that God is far? And what a beautiful testimony. I mean, the more I read about her story, the more I was encouraged with how she was responding to her hardship and her suffering. And, and the whole reason I even knew of her story and even heard her name is because she actually went viral about a year or so ago when she served as a contestant on America's Got Talent. She comes onto the stage and she's getting ready to, to sing a song and she's a very talented uh, singer and songwriter. And as she's sharing a little bit of her story, some of these details about her cancer and all those things come out and the judges marvel. Like one of them even says, but look at you, you're, you're glowing. You seem so joyful. And I loved her response. She says, I'm so much more than the bad things that happened to me. You can't wait until life isn't hard anymore before you decide to be happy. She's refusing to let her hardship define her. Right? And she's looking for God's goodness in the prayers that she hadn't prayed. Her response to all of these things was so inspiring. And she encouraged and inspired the judges and everyone there that was listening to her that night as she continued to sing a song about how we respond to suffering, saying over and over again, it's okay. It's okay. And so this story went viral. 
Uh, yes, she advanced to the next round. And yes, that song shot up to the top of the iTunes charts. But what was so encouraging to me is that the more you read her story, the more you would find these details. What was being shared more than anything else was not, oh, she's a great singer. Oh, she's a great songwriter. It wasn't even really the details of her hardship. People didn't get lost in all the nuances of, of the type of cancer and how long it had been there and all that she had to do to overcome it. All they kept talking about was how she had responded and how she had demonstrated joy, how she had demonstrated hope. That's the picture of a renewed life, a life that looks different from the world around you. That's what we were seeing with Ruth. I had heard about you. I've heard about how you've responded and how you were overcome. It was such an incredible testimony, and that's a great example for you and me. I love one piece to Jane Marchewski's story that to me really captures all of it, which is the song, the, the, the title that she goes by when she decides to perform. Her stage name is Nightbird. It's a name she settled on after having three straight consecutive dreams of birds singing in the middle of the night. And when she gave an explanation as to why she uses this as her stage name, she says, I want to be that way, that even when I'm in the middle of a dark time and there are no signs that it will end, I want to be that bird that sings in anticipation of the good things I trust are coming. <laughs> Man, what a beautiful example of how to respond to hardship and suffering, to seeing even in the middle of the darkness, to trust in the good things that you know are coming. That's the picture of a renewed life. And I guess where I would close this story is one final thought that we see in this interaction between Ruth and Boaz. But I think Jane Marchewski had has captured and harnessed in her own life and is on display in her stories something very similar that we see in the story of both Ruth and Naomi that Boaz articulates in this first encounter. For after you read a little bit further after verse 11, Boaz says, I've been told all about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and your mother and your homeland and came to live with the people you did not know before. And then he offers this blessing. May the Lord repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And that just resonates with me. Part of what was so compelling about Ruth's response to her own hardship and tragedy and her devotion to Naomi was that she was willing to leave her father and mother and her homeland to come live with the people she didn't know. It has these echoes of the story of Abraham, doesn't it? To get up and to leave and go to a land that I will show you. This, this reminder of what it means to trust God and where he leads us, no matter how good or bad those situations and circumstances may be. What we see with Ruth's story is that she was seeking refuge not in her family, not in her comfort, not in her own home or familiarity. She was seeking refuge in God. So was Jane Barczewski. What about you? 
when you think about what your hardships and your trials and your struggles may be today. Where are you trying to find strength? Where are you seeking refuge? The reminder for all of us is to learn from these very powerful stories that tell us seek refuge in him. The the renewed life doesn't allow the bad things in life to define us and cast blame on him. We run to him. And we find refuge in him and we look for the answers to the prayers we haven't prayed. We look for the way that he's using even these hard, hard situations and difficulties to make us stronger, to give us hope. We find refuge in him. And when we take refuge in this almighty, incredible God, what we see time and time again is that his love defends us. It cares for us. It nurtures us. The renewed life knows that the love of God will always be there, even in the midst of hardship and suffering. Our devotion and our discernment and our delight in him can find strength and confidence in finding refuge in him and knowing that his love will always be there to protect us. And so that's my encouragement to you this morning. Whatever your hardships and struggles you may carry, come to the Lord your God. Take refuge in him and let his love defend you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do love you. And we are so grateful for the way that you care for us. We pray that your refuge would once again be ever present. And God, that we would be able to see the answers to the prayers that we haven't prayed and receive trials and hardships, Father, with joy because we know it produces something within us. And it allows us to come closer to the hope and the longing for the world that is to come, to finally be with you forever. But in the midst of our waiting, God, may we trust and find comfort once again in knowing that your love defends us. We thank you, Father. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.